Welcome to the Fertile Womb Podcast. My name is Holly, and I'm the owner of Rosebud Wellness, which is a women's holistic health practice in Southern California. In my practice, I use acupuncture, yoni steaming, abdominal massage, and the fertility awareness method to support women on their conception journey. In this podcast, I will be sharing about some of the practices and tools that I use in my practice, and also will be interviewing women about their own personal fertility journey, as well as other professionals in the fertility space. Thanks so much for listening. Please enjoy. I'm excited to share with you that I have recently found a an at-home hormone testing company that I really really love and very much align with their methodology and perspective on testing your hormones for understanding what's happening with your fertility. So the name of the company is Prove, so it's spelled P R O O V. And I really love that they kind of do a full hormone testing um, for understanding your fertility and potentially ovarian reserve. There are always limitations when you're talking about taking a snapshot on any individual day. But what's so really so great about this company is that they do invite you to test your hormones on multiple days of the cycle to really get a more complete picture of what's actually going on. Um, So I highly recommend checking them out. You can find them at provetest.com and you can use my code HOLLY, H-O-L-L-Y 20 at checkout to get 20% off of your first order. And they do have a variety of different test kits, um, and some of them do also incorporate the male side of things. So they do offer some semen analysis as well. So go over to prove, P-R-O-O-V test.com to check them out. And don't forget to use my code HOLLY20 to get 20% off of your first order. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Fertile Womb Podcast. I am doing a solo episode today and going to be sharing with you some thoughts about egg quality, diminished ovarian reserve, and some things that you might hear about in the fertility space. And just wanted to use this as an opportunity to potentially clear up some confusion about some of the the lab values and things that you might hear about egg quality in and around the fertility and conscious conception space. So if you have had your hormone levels tested, if you've done any kind of testing for fertility, it's possible that you have already had your AMH or anti-malarian hormone levels tested. And so if you have had this tested and you've been told that your AMH is low, for example, for your age, there is a difference in terms of the range depending upon how old you are. And I've been doing a ton of research on AMH in particular personally, and there are so many different lab ranges when it comes to a woman's age, and then also depends on the units. So it, it can all get a little bit tricky. So I will just invite you to not jump to any conclusions based on this one number alone, which many doctors 
will have a tendency to jump to conclusions. If you have a super low AMH reading, they'll be really quick to just say, you know, there's no possibility of you achieving pregnancy. And so we just need to go to donor eggs or we need to jump into IVF as soon as possible because you have such limited time. So what AMH is most helpful in sort of predicting is how successful an assisted reproductive technology will be for you. So because AMH gives you your ovarian reserve, it is telling you basically how many follicles will potentially be able to be stimulated in an IVF cycle. And so in that situation, we are looking for quantity over quality, which in a natural conception situation, which is primarily my focus, the focus of my work is in natural conception, we don't really care that much about how many follicles there are. We care about the quality of those follicles. So that's mostly what I'm going to be talking about and focusing on. But I do think it's important to have this information, to have this value just as kind of more information. I think the the more information, the better when it comes to trying to understand our fertility. You can also make yourself really crazy, which is just another nod to the importance of individualized care. So for some of the women I work with, I recommend all the lab lab testing. We do all the different things because they're really interested in it. They find it really fun and encouraging and motivating. And then other women, we really barely do any testing or we kind of think about at what point do we want to do further testing? Let's just see what we can do with the charting and with diet and lifestyle and supplementation, potentially some herbs. And then, you know, when are we going to maybe do some further testing if you're still not pregnant in this certain time frame that we, we set? And obviously it can always change too, depending on what's going on. But this is just to say that you don't necessarily have to go down the lab testing rabbit hole and you can work to improve your egg quality, whether you know there's some kind of issue or think that there may be some kind of issue or not. So that is what we'll also be talking about in this episode. But I just wanted to say that a low ovarian reserve can indicate that it's potentially going to be more challenging or take more time for you to achieve pregnancy. And then a high reading of AMH can be indicative of PCOS. And so it can also be indicative of having a a tendency towards insulin resistance, even if you haven't specifically been diagnosed with PCOS. And if you've heard me talk about PCOS before, which is polycystic ovarian syndrome, if you're not familiar with it, there are many different types of PCOS and it's a spectrum. So, and it is also very impacted by diet, lifestyle, and supplementation. So I have worked with several women that have been diagnosed with PCOS, but don't actually meet the criteria for PCOS anymore because of the diet and lifestyle changes that they made. And so that's a really interesting thing that can happen that they, you know, historically had elevated AMH levels and now their AMH levels are within normal range. And that can also happen too for women that have low AMH levels. So if you go to a doctor 
sometimes they can act as if AMH levels are fixed or any of our hormone levels that they're, that they're fixed or they're too variable that we can't even make any sense out of them. So those are the kind of two things I've heard from doctors in the past when it comes to hormone testing. And what I will say is that, yes, there is definitely variability and yes, it's important to be testing things at the right time for AMH in particular, it doesn't matter what day of the cycle you're in. But I will say that for women that have come off of birth control, I would not recommend running out and getting your AMH levels tested until you've been off of birth control for, it's really hard to say, but three, at least three months, potentially six months, maybe even longer because AMH levels will show up lower after you stop taking hormonal birth control. And a lot of your lab values will be off shortly after you come off of birth control, especially if you're someone that was on it for a really long time, especially if you had hormonal issues before going on it. And also if you started at a really young age too, all of that can impact how long it takes for your hormones to kind of come back online. Another thing that, that people, that doctors and fertility practitioners will talk about a lot when it comes to ovarian reserve and also advanced maternal age or geriatric pregnancies and things like that is FSH. So we're wanting FSH, which is follicle stimulating hormone, which will be tested at day three of the cycle to be less than 10. For AMH, I didn't say the the lab range for that. The range that I have for AMH just right in front of me is in nanograms per milliliter, and it's one to 3.5. And like I said, there's a lot of variability in the units that people will use, and as well as the age ranges for different people. And it, it can also depend on the antral follicle count. We could get really crazy, but this is just a, sort of a basic sort of range to be keeping in mind. So when it comes to FSH, it's milli international units per milliliter. So that is the unit that's pretty standard for most of the FSH ranges I've looked at. They pretty much seem to use that unit to measure. And so high levels of FSH mean that the follicles are not responding as well as they should be. And that can be an indication of diminished ovarian reserve. This is something as well that doctors will look at as being kind of fixed and something that you can't do anything about. Once you have elevated FSH levels, then, you know, that ship has kind of sailed. You really need to get donor eggs and, you know, everything that I just said with low AMH will happen with high FSH. And especially if you have both of these, then they are definitely going to be urging you to go towards IVF and potentially donor eggs or other options. So, and as well, it can indicate a low ovarian reserve and diminished or less than optimal egg quality too. And so there isn't really an egg quality test per se, but they are sort of making this assumption based on how low the reserve is that the quality is likely poor as well. But like I just said, there isn't a test for assessing the quality of your eggs. So that is something that we are going to be working on if we are trying to conceive in the absence of knowing what the quality actually is. Another thing that we're looking at when it comes to 
sort of assessing um, our health overall is LH, which is luteinizing hormone. And particularly, we are looking at the FSH to LH ratio. So there are two numbers, and each of them also have their own ranges. But I did just do an episode about lab values. So I'm not going to belabor that too much right now. And like I said, I I think it's kind of boring if I just list a bunch of numbers. And in my course, I think I, I mentioned this in that other lab testing episode as well. I do have a bunch of different charts for all of the days that it's best to take all of these hormone levels to assess all of these hormone levels, as well as their functional ranges. So I did talk in the lab testing episode about the difference between a reference range in a conventional doctor's office versus what is a functional range, which is really more optimal when it comes to any of the lab ranges. So anyway, the optimal when it comes to the LH, FSH to LH ratio is that they are pretty close to each other. So there's a one-to-one ratio. And so if it can also be two to one in a PCOS situation. So LH levels are typically higher, which a lot of the time is why women with PCOS have a difficult time using LH strips or OPKs, ovulation predictor kits, because they're always seeing positives because their LH levels are so high. And so it's always showing up as positive, even though they are maybe not approaching ovulation at all. So those are kind of the ones that are really important when we're talking about ovarian reserve and some of the ones that a doctor is going to be looking at to assess your fertility, especially if you are over 35, which in the conventional doctor's office will be looked at as a geriatric pregnancy, which is so crazy to me. I am um, 38, so I'm geriatric right along with you if you are over 35. So now I wanted to talk about some of the ways that we can work to improve egg quality. There are so many things that you can do, and so I'm not going to get into every single one of them in this episode, but this is kind of just a little bit of a taste of what the work that I do, how we work on improving egg quality is not, you know, to be jumping into lots of medications and things like that. There really is so much that you can do with your diet and lifestyle, but it's also important to know that egg quality does decline with age. And part of that reason is just as we age, things in our bodies um, break down and that's part of the natural aging process. I really love the perspectives offered in Chinese medicine of just the the decline at different times of our of our lives of our physical body and how our spiritual selves our our wisdom all of that side of us our spirituality that is sort of coming to the forefront versus our physical body so it helps you to kind of reframe aging as being a bad thing but just a natural transition that's part of of life So, but what I will say is that part of the reason that egg quality and both and sperm quality are declining is I do think that a lot of people are tending to have children later in, in my generation. And then certainly in the the next generation as well, because we were kind of sold this perspective that we need to, you know, we need to go to college and we need to get a good job and we need to really be stable before we bring 
children into the world. And I don't think that's an altogether bad thing, but I do personally wish that I was given just a little bit more information about how my health and fertility works so that I could have maybe made decisions um, at different times. So it is always kind of just a, you can't know what you didn't know before you learn about it and that's fine. And so that is part of the way that I view the work that I do is to expose women to this information. And so my, my podcast, my humble podcast feels like a way that I can reach more people. So anyway, to go back into egg quality and being related to age, it's not just age by itself, but it's also likely related to being exposed to toxins in our environment, both within the world around us, and then also potentially within our home, depending upon how aware we are of those kinds of things. So like the types of uh, cleaning products and body care products that we use. I did an episode on xenoestrogen, so you might want to go back and check that one out um, to learn a little bit more about that if you're if you're new to that information. And then also nutrient depletion. So for women that are, you know, maybe have had, I'm working with a few people right now that have had healthy pregnancies previously, and they are hoping to have more children and they're having trouble conceiving uh, more children. And so in that situation, a lot of times that's related to being, you know, a little bit nutrient depleted prior to pregnancy, going through the whole process of pregnancy and then postpartum, all of the healing and breastfeeding, everything that's involved in that postpartum time of not being able to sleep and potentially not eating well, depending upon how much support you have. And then also the way that our families are structured and not really having as much support from extended family and things like that, not having as much of like a community or village, um, all of that can really lead to a lot of significant nutrient depletions, which can impact egg quality. So it's not based purely on our chronological age. And so we do have an impact on the health of our eggs, on the quality of our eggs. So it can seem kind of like, oh, well, you're over 35. And so now your fertility just fell off a cliff and good luck with that. So I've even seen... There's a, a lovely teacher that I, I've worked with that I, I love most of what she shares, but she shared this one graph where I can't remember the exact names or the exact uh, ages, but it it was something like at 30, you know, like your fertility just falls off a cliff. And I just really don't think that information is helpful, like those sort of statistics, because it really puts into a woman's mind that it's just not possible. And I do think that our mindset is really huge on the fertility journey. Our ability to believe that a healthy pregnancy is possible for us. I just, I feel that in my body when I say it and I'm not actively trying to conceive, but I can remember when I wanted that so badly I, in every cell of my body it was just like, bring me my baby. And so I can really relate to women on this fertility journey. And I, I do think that's where my passion comes from is that this is 
all of it is so important. It's not just the lab values or the fertility awareness chart or, you know, the different signs and symptoms that we experience. I do think that the mindset piece is really big. And so there isn't a test for egg quality there. Like I said, there isn't a test for your mindset and how knowing that you're, if you're over 35 or you have PCOS or you have this or that thing going on. I think the, when you hear from a, a doctor or for some from some kind of professional that this is what's happening to your body because you celebrated your 35th birthday, it's just ridiculous to me. So anyway, we can get a general idea of our ovarian reserve from FSH, which maybe would be elevated, AMH, which would be a little bit lower. And then also estrogen levels are another thing that not all practitioners talk about. I think a lot of doctors aren't aware of this tendency, but the optimal estrogen levels, which would also be taken at day three, similar to FSH, would be 20 to 75 picograms per milliliter. And if they are higher than that, that can potentially indicate a lower ovarian reserve as well. And this can even be in a situation where FSH is normal. So it is kind of suppressing FSH in that situation. And also if it's lower, that can be related to DHEA being a little bit low. So that's something else to, to test. And like I said, I already talked about that in the the lab testing episode that I did a few weeks ago. So definitely go back and check that out if this is kind of new information for you. But that's just something that's also an interesting piece of the puzzle. And so it's not really, you know, if I see that someone has elevated estrogen, elevated FSH or low AMH, I'm going to do anything particularly differently for that individual person simply based on that, I will always look at the woman's entire system and as well as the foundational factors of how she sleeps, what her exercise looks like, what her diet's looking like, how her protein intake is looking what stress levels are like, what her work is. Does she, she happy? Is she feeling joy? Is she feeling hopeful? These are all things that are equally as important as any of these numbers taken together. So hopefully that's pretty clear throughout this, what I'm sharing here. Um, and one of the things that's, that's important to kind of talk about. So when it comes to hormonal birth control, many doctors will tell you that you can just stop taking birth control and then just start trying to get pregnant whenever you, you want to. And they don't recommend for you to come off of it in advance of actually wanting to actively try to conceive. And the reason for that is because they have been taught basically to be afraid of pregnancy, unless that's what a woman wants in that moment. So I know that I felt that way too. I can remember being in high school and there was one point where I was very young. I was 15 and I had just started becoming, became sexually active. And I also had just started taking birth control because my mom overheard a conversation with my sister um, that I was having, that I was going to have sex with my boyfriend. And so She's like, oh, well, we got to go get you some birth control. And so I, I went on birth control before I ever actually had sex. And the birth control pill, 
made my period go away. And I think that that was probably for a number of reasons. I definitely, I've talked about my eating disorder before. And at that time, it wasn't something that was diagnosed. It was kind of just starting. Um, but I always had really weird um, eating patterns in high school and definitely around that time, just really stressed out. So my period was gone and I frantically took a pregnancy test and I told my boyfriend, I thought maybe I was pregnant. And I just remember there being so much drama around that. And I know that, you know, most of the listeners of this podcast are not teenagers that are having that experience, but it really just illustrates kind of the conventional perspective on pregnancy, that it's possible at any time. Like if you're not paying attention, you could get pregnant. And I do think that, you know, for a 15 year old, for teenagers, you do have to be more thoughtful because they're their bodies do tend to just be super fertile. Um, but this is just to say that it doesn't, it's not that your fertility comes back immediately after you stop taking birth control. So that's something that I, sh I have shared about previously. And I just wanted to kind of make a little bit of a note of that. So when I was talking about AMH, I said that, you know, if I wouldn't recommend going out to get your AMH levels tested if you just stop taking birth control. And it can take as long as 18 months to two years after birth control for your AMH levels to normalize. So if you have gone to your doctor, if you're, you know, say you're 35 and they've told you, oh, just stay on birth control until the month that you're ready to, to get pregnant, I would highly recommend coming off of birth control as soon as you're even thinking about pregnancy. And the reason that I say that is because there are other ways to prevent pregnancy in the meantime. So if you want to get pregnant in a year from now, for example, if you come off of birth control now, you can learn the fertility awareness method and learn when you're fertile and when you're not. And so typically women are fertile for about six days out of the cycle. You can learn when those days are, and you can use condoms, diaphragms, a cervical cap, withdrawal, abstinence. There are so many ways that you can avoid pregnancy during your fertile window once you actually know when it is. And you can do that by taking your temperature and tracking your mucus. And it seems really overwhelming and intense at first, but it really just becomes like second nature. To me, it's like brushing my teeth now. I just check my mucus every time I go to the bathroom, check my temperature in the morning. I don't really have to think about it. So there is a learning curve where there's a period of time where it's overwhelming and hard and confusing. And I will say that for most of the women I work with, within two or three cycles, they know what to do and they know how to track their cycle and they understand it. And it's really not that complicated. There is just a lot to learn up front and that can be kind of intimidating for a lot of people. So anyway, then when you are ready to actually conceive, then you just switch it up and start having sex during your fertile window. And then if, you know, if you're not getting pregnant after a, a certain period of time, then you can get your AMH levels tested. You can get all of your levels tested that I mentioned in the lab testing episode, and you'll get a much more accurate reflection of what's actually happening inside of your body rather than it being kind of impacted by birth control for that whole time, um, you know, 
if you had continued to take it, for example. So how can you improve egg quality? So I wanted to share a, a quote from a book called The Egg Quality Diet. It's by Amy Raup, and she I hope I'm pronouncing her last name correctly. She will be on the podcast pretty soon. I'm really excited to be interviewing her soon. She's also an acupuncturist, and I've been really um, having a lot of fun reading her book and just following along on her Instagram as well. So I'll link her Instagram in the show notes. If you want to go check her out, I highly recommend it. If you want to learn more about egg quality, she is a really great resource. So one of the things that she shares in her book is that optimizing your gut health is the most important piece to restoring proper immune function in your body and reducing inflammation. And so those things are all really important when we're talking about egg quality. So everybody wants to be able to just take a supplement, which I will talk about supplements in a little bit. Um, so it's not that they're necessarily a bad thing, but everybody kind of wants a quick fix solution when it comes to really anything regarding our health. And I'm not saying this to, to say this about you, of course, I am also guilty of this too, that you know, you want the simplest way to get to whatever goal that you have. And so it makes sense that people want to be able to take a supplement rather than having to change up their entire lifestyle or, you know, try a bunch of different things with their diet or not be able to eat the things that they're used to eating and trying, you know, mixing things up with their nutrition or the way that they structure their day. All of that kind of stuff seems really overwhelming at the beginning. So like I said, there are so many things when it comes to improving egg quality. And in my one-on-one -on -one work, I go, we go really deep into, into the weeds on all of this kind of stuff. And I also cater it to each individual woman too, um, in terms of, you know, what she's willing to eat, what she likes to eat, what she um, has tried in the past, what doesn't work for her. So I'm just going to share some of the things that are our most basic in this episode that really everybody could, could benefit from. So hopefully this is helpful. So balancing blood sugar, when it comes to anything hormone related, that is one of the keys. So if you listen to my episode with Nora, she, that was the first thing that she said, she's a nutritionist. And that was the first thing she said is, you know, when we're talking about cycle health and fertility, the first thing to start doing is balance your blood sugar. And the reason for this is because spikes in your blood sugar will reduce egg quality and disrupt your hormones. And so basically if you have a spike, which is typically from eating carbohydrates, for example, in the absence of anything else, like a a protein or, and, or a fat. So your blood sugar will shoot up. And then from there, the only place to go is down. So then it will just drop down and you'll have all of these kind of like rises and crashes throughout the day. And that's really disruptive for your entire system. And so there are many, many ways to keep your blood sugar balanced. So I'm not going to belabor all of those things right now. Nora and I did talk about that. And like I said, this is a lot of the information I go into the, I get into the details more in my one-on-one -on -one work and then in the course too. But I think it's just, it would just be a little much without knowing exactly where everybody that's listening is, is at. So um, basically one of the easiest ways to balance your blood sugar, I'll give you a kind of the 
the ways that I recommend for everybody across the board not knowing much about your system. So it's like I said, there are some nuances on an individualized basis. So if you are kind of like, oh, that doesn't seem like it it fits me or that wouldn't work for me, then just maybe that isn't for you. So take what you can use and then just forget about the rest of what I'm saying if it doesn't resonate with you. So um, eating breakfast is one of the most amazing ways to start out your day with balanced blood sugar. It does seem to be that if women are able to start out their day with a balanced breakfast, prioritizing protein, that blood sugar is able to stay more balanced throughout the entire rest of the day. So that is a meal that you really want to prioritize. And most Americans, I don't really know in other cultures if they do a better job of this, but... Many Americans, many of the people that I have worked out, worked with for the past 10 to 15 years of my practice have struggled with eating breakfast. A lot of people are running out the door and they don't have time to eat or they're eating a protein bar, having a shake or something like that. They don't have time to actually make a meal and um, actually sit down and eat that meal. And so, like I said, when when I have an opportunity to to work with women on a case by case basis, you know, it's like, if I like to know what time do you have to leave and when would you maybe have to wake up? Like, what can we, how can we plan in advance for you to be able to make a really nourishing breakfast where you're prioritizing protein and still get out the door at 6am if that's what needs to be happening. So there are a lot of ways that you can get creative about making sure that you're getting a really great quality breakfast in the morning without necessarily needing to quit your job or to be, you know, laboring over the stove for hours and hours and hours and doing meal prep on Sundays for the entire day. I also think it's important for women to eat the foods that they love and to do the things that they love and not be feeling like they need to be in the kitchen all day long preparing foods unless that's something that they want to be doing. So that's my first tip is to eat breakfast. My second tip would be to eat a balance of fat, carbs, and protein at every single meal. And the amount of carbohydrates and the type of carbohydrates really matters. So you're wanting to stay away from refined carbohydrates, which are things like flour, bread, cereals, or more processed foods, and then prioritizing eating things like sweet potatoes or starchy vegetables or nuts and seeds and things like that. There are many, many, many options when it comes to getting carbohydrates in that are more of a slow burn carb. And then also the ways in which you combine your foods all really makes a difference in being able to keep a balanced blood sugar. So the next thing that I will share about when it comes to diet is cons the consumption of fish two to three times a week can really help to improve both B6 and omega-3s in your system. And both of those things have a lot of really great qualities when it comes to achieving pregnancy and also fertile quality cervical mucus, progesterone levels. I could just keep talking about all of the benefits of eating fish. So if you are somebody that likes to eat it anyways, then that is wonderful and increasing it to two to three times a week um, if you're eating it less than that. And ideally a serving would be somewhere like three to four ounces basically of fish. So if you're getting sushi, I would just kind of be curious if that would be enough. So I just think about how little the pieces are. 
but yeah, you can also, you know, look at the protein content of the, the things that you're purchasing and, and kind of just seeing if, if you're getting enough. Olive oil is another really wonderful thing to add into your diet for improving egg quality, nuts and seeds. You can also think about um, doing some seed cycling. If you haven't heard of that before, that is in the follicular phase. So from the start of your period until ovulation, consuming ground flax seeds and ground potentially if you want to grind them, or you can also eat them whole pumpkin seeds. And then after ovulation in the luteal phase, consuming sesame seeds ground if you want to, and sunflower seeds ground or whole, depending on what your preference is. You can also consume nut butter forms of these things too. So whatever's actually going to help you to incorporate the practice. And there is some research on seed cycling, which is just kind of fun. And it showed that there was an improvement in, in cyclical health for women that were using seed cycling. Other people say eating so many nuts and seeds are horrible for you. And I don't really know. I think if you feel good eating them and they taste good and it gives you a sense inside of your body that you're doing something really nourishing and good for yourself, then go for the seed cycling. But if you don't like them or they make your belly hurt, then don't do that practice. Um, yeah. And often a lot of the, these, these kind of things come from the Mediterranean diet. So there are a lot of people that will talk about the Mediterranean diet being sort of like the best for optimizing fertility. And if you've been listening to my podcast or following me on Instagram, then you already know about my obsession with Lily Nichols and her book, Real Food for Pregnancy. And she does talk in her book about a lot of the, the people, the fertility specialists and other practitioners that advocate for a Mediterranean diet are citing resources that actually found that incorporating other animal proteins um, and specifically, you know, like beef, red meat, for example, which the Mediterranean diet does not include. They, a lot of the practitioners just kind of leave that part out that it can be really beneficial for fertility too. So, you know, I, I would say that I don't really follow along with that, but I think I'm more of a, what can we add in rather than what can we cut out type of person. I think that comes from my background of anorexia, of struggling with that and that being such a restrictive environment for so much of my life that I am, my tendency is to rather than do a bunch of elimination diets or, or ascribe to like something in particular to put myself or any of my clients into a box is more what what do you actually like to eat what can we incorporate what have i learned about that is really going to optimize your fertility and i will say that following the mediterranean diet um as it's sort of set out exactly is not typically what i would recommend but i think that like i just mentioned those those few things are taken from that. And I do think that they can be very supportive of fertility. So hopefully that's helpful. Another thing we're going to want to do when it comes to egg quality is to reduce inflammation. And so gluten can be related to inflammation for some people. 
dairy can be related to inflammation for some people and other people do just fine with both gluten and dairy. So like I just said, I don't think that we need to cut things out unless we're seeing that there's a problem. And I will say that more people tend to have an issue with gluten than dairy. And dairy is a very, very, very fertility improving um, type of food. And particularly you want to be consuming raw, potentially A2. So A2 is the type of protein. And most dairy that you'll find in the grocery store is A1 protein. And so now I have actually seen that they have A2, both milk and yogurt. I haven't actually seen if they have cheese, but I haven't looked very hard. Um, but basically that comes from cows that are a specific type of cow that produces A2 dairy, um, goats and sheep as well. So any goat or sheep is going to be A2 and probably they'll put it on the label nowadays because people are becoming um, more aware of that. And so you'll also want full fat, grass fed, and that will help to ensure that you are not getting the parts of dairy that are going to be causing more inflammation. So a lot of people will say, I stopped having dairy and it relieved all of these symptoms. But if they were consuming conventional dairy, that was probably the issue for them rather than the fact that it's dairy in and of itself. And in Chinese medicine, we talk a ton about dairy causing what we call in Chinese medicine dampness. So it's basically just kind of an accumulation of fluids that can then become thick and viscous, they can turn into phlegm, for example. So in that type of situation, I would maybe recommend not consuming so much dairy, but it would really depend upon the person and the whole picture of that person if I'm going to be cutting something or recommending that they cut something out of their diet. And then if we are cutting something out like gluten or dairy, we're only doing it for a couple of weeks seeing what that does for us, and then adding it back in and seeing how that feels. So when we're doing some kind of elimination diet type thing, it's never for the rest of our lives or something that you're going to want to be doing long-term unless you're seeing a benefit. And then, you know, making sure that you're getting enough nutrients in other ways to make up for cutting that thing out. So ideally we are reducing sugar, especially processed sugars. So there are some sources that will say, you know, like even stay away from honey and molasses and maple syrup and all of these kinds of things. And I do think that those, those things can have an impact on the blood sugar. But like I just said, if we can balance blood sugar throughout the day in a lot of other ways, or, you know, if you're going to have a cookie, like have it with a glass of raw milk or something to kind of help mitigate that blood sugar spike. So my feeling is that we should never feel that we we can't have things that we enjoy when we're on a conception journey. And then, you know, once we have our baby in our belly, then we kind of don't care anymore. Or once we have, we give birth to that child, then we kind of go back to doing what we were doing. So the, in my opinion, the the fertility journey is just kind of the beginning potentially of a lifestyle shift that you will be incorporating for the remainder of your life. So I want it to feel like something that is actually sustainable over a longer period of time than just that preconception phase. So 
reducing sugar is, is a really great practice, but please don't feel like you can't have things that you enjoy, I guess is the, what I'm saying there. Um, reducing corn is really important. Most of the corn in the United States is genetically modified. So that is something that will contain all sorts of pesticides and just expo be exposing you to a lot of unnecessary chemicals. Um, and then also reducing anything that you're sensitive to. So if you, if there's a certain type of thing that you eat and you're kind of like, Oh, I feel a little, you know, whatever, after I eat this food, then maybe trying to cut it out and then seeing how that, how that feels inside your body. And I will say that a lot of food sensitivity tests that you can do are not very accurate or helpful. They'll just kind of tell you that you're allergic to everything and make you afraid of food. So um, I would be a little bit um, careful about, about deciding to embark on that, that kind of journey. Um, and then reducing and eliminate or eliminating, if you can, alcohol, which will really help to reduce inflammation. And so ideally, when it comes to egg quality, you are avoiding caffeine as much as you can. And if you are going to have caffeine, keeping it to a cup of tea or a half cup of coffee, switching to decaf and using a Swiss water process decaf method. So you can even just type that in on Amazon and you can find some brands. You can also opt for Rasa tea, which has a coffee flavor, but it doesn't have any caffeine. It's actually just a tea, but it has that kind of that bitter flavor that people that like coffee really would enjoy. So I just talked about um, sugar, but it can be helpful to stay away from more processed sugar and incorporating more natural forms of sugar. And the reason for that is that sugar can reduce your chances of carrying to term. So that means it can, if you're eating too much sugar, it can um, increase your risk for miscarriage. And it can also increase your risk for ovulatory dysfunction. So that would be potentially ovulating too late or not having a, a great strength of ovulation. So if you've heard me talk about um, the PROVE test before, one of the things that that is measuring for is the strength of your ovulation. And that is indicated by where your progesterone levels are at after you have ovulated. So if your progesterone is slow to rise, if it's dipping throughout the luteal phase, um, there's a lot of ways that we can kind of assess if your progesterone levels are low. A lot of times that is due to a weak ovulation. And so sugar can, can create that. So soy also is something you want to avoid to improve your egg quality. And this is because it blocks your thyroid hormone function and it is estrogenic. And so this will disrupt your overall hormone balance as well. Um, alcohol and gluten, we already talked about that is related to, you know, its tendency to create more inflammation. But if you are noticing that you really do fine with gluten. It also depends on where you're getting it from. You know, if you're eating bread from the like white bread from the grocery store, that's filled with all sorts of toxic chemicals versus like a homemade sourdough bread, for example, that would probably feel a little bit different in your body and would probably impact your egg quality in, in a different way. So also toxic bath and body products are something you're going to want to avoid to improve egg quality and refined carbohydrates. So things that are, you know, more processed type foods like breads you would buy from the grocery store, for example. 
So things that you can include, I highly recommend um, Lily Nichols' book, Real Food for Pregnancy. I also love Nourishing Traditions by Sally Fallon. Um, that one is, is a really big resource, lots of recipes in there. So it can be kind of overwhelming, but there's a lot of really great information in there about, it's not from so much of a fertility and pregnancy lens as Lily's book is, but it is based on the same sort of, um, foods that are most supportive for, for human health and therefore fertility as well. So top foods to include are grass-fed goat or cow dairy, or I'll also put sheep in there too. Ideally, it will be in its raw form and A2 if you cannot tolerate A1, for example, and bone broth, collagen, or gelatin. So you can cook grains, you can make soups, you can make sauces. There are so many ways that you can use bone broth, collagen, you can just mix into a smoothie or your tea or coffee if you're drinking coffee, uh, gelatin, you can make lots of fun little jelly candies and things like that, or make jello, but obviously not using like a jello packet. You want to actually get gelatin. Um, leafy green veggies are something that's also really important to include in the diet daily. So one to two cups per meal. So basically if you're having two cups uh, raw, so if it cooks down to one cup or less or whatever, that's what you're you're shooting for. Incorporating healthy fats and oils, so things like avocados, avocado oil, coconut oil, ghee, butter, extra virgin olive oil, incorporating seeds, like seed cycling, like I mentioned before, if they are not disruptive to your digestive system. Um, avoiding seed oils, which if you go out to a restaurant or if you get salad dressing from most places, they will maybe have some seed oils in them and they won't, it won't say on the label seed oils. It will be hidden in some other kind of um, wording so that you maybe wouldn't be aware. So if you can make your own salad dressings and as much as is possible, reducing the amount that you eat out or you get food from, from other places where you don't know the type of oil that they're, that they're using. I would say most restaurants tend to use seed oils because they're significantly less expensive. And so from a business point of view, that's kind of what makes the most sense for them, unfortunately. Uh, Pasture-raised meats and eggs. So you can be incorporating red meat, chicken, um, any kind of meat that you can think of. Um, and then eggs, it is really important to be getting organic pasture-raised. Um, I have my, my own chickens at my house, which is really fun. And one thing that, that Lily Nichols, um, who I'm for some reason talking about a ton in this episode, she posted the other day that she has chickens at her house too. And I will say that it is not cost-effective. That's what she was talking about in the episode because I buy, you know, like really good quality feed for my chickens and I need to, you know, be taking care of them. And I have their little house that I had to, I had to get a fence and a covering and I converted a shed. I didn't do it myself. I had to pay somebody to convert a shed in my backyard into a chicken coop. And so all of that is a significant investment that not everybody wants to or has the means to to make. And so I do I don't think that buying eggs from a grocery store is a bad thing, but it is something you want to kind of be conscious of 
of the quality that you're getting. And if you can find somebody around you that has chickens and sells would sell you some eggs, or if you can go to a farmer's market, that's always a really great way to be getting in um, better quality ingredients is at farmer's markets and things like that. I know I'm super spoiled here in Southern California that we have them sort of all the time. So if you don't have that in, in your area, then you know, just getting the best things that you can at the grocery store is perfectly fine. Um, and also slowly digested carbs. So things like steel cut oats, nuts, seeds, lentils, chickpeas, things like that, starchy vegetables, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then fruit, ideally you're getting uh, the most from citrus and berries, which have a lot of antioxidants. Vitamin C is also really important for overall health as well as progesterone support. And those are all of the dietary recommendations that I would really work to prioritize when it comes to improving egg quality. I'll also go through a few things when it comes to lifestyle, which these things are kind of obvious, but I sometimes, you know, you don't necessarily think about something being problematic for your fertility unless somebody says it sometimes. So that's why I'm going to say it. So sorry if it seems kind of obvious, but Smoking, of course, is not something that you are going to want to continue doing if you are wanting to improve your egg quality. I will say stop smoking cigarettes, stop smoking pot. Anything that you're smoking is going to have an impact on your hormone levels. And marijuana in particular is estrogenic. So men that smoke a lot will sometimes grow breasts because of how much estrogen they're being exposed to um, from smoking weed. So in a woman, you would think like, oh, I want to improve my estrogen levels, you know, maybe at a certain point in my cycle because low estrogen would be problematic as well. But it really, there is a sweet spot for all of the hormones. So we are wanting to not expose ourselves to exogenous estrogen and be supporting our system so that we can make our own hormones in a healthy, balanced way. Reducing xenoestrogen exposure, I'm not going to go into this into too much detail because I have an episode about that already, so you can go back and check that one out, but that is something that we are going to want to incorporate in our lifestyle. Exercising moderately, so walking, doing gentle yoga, or other more moderate types of exercises. If you're somebody that's an athlete or has been exercising for a long time, then you know, maybe you can do more than that and you know what affects your cycle potentially if you are doing um, any cycle tracking. For example, if you're taking your temperature, you're, you're tracking your mucus, if you're seeing that the follicular phase and luteal phase and everything really fits within optimal parameters and you're going for 10 mile runs or something, then more power to you and that's great. And as long as you are fueling yourself um, well, then perhaps that is working for your system. But it is important to say that excessive exercise can cause many, many cycle irregularities. And the way that I typically see excessive exercise show up in the cycle is that there will be sometimes low temperatures. So less than 97.4, this is in Fahrenheit, in the pre-ovulatory phase, maybe not getting to 98 in the post-ovulatory phase, for example, um, it can also show up as having delayed ovulation. So really long follicular phase and, or a short luteal phase. So those are kind of also limited cervical mucus as well. 
So if you're having any of those things, or if you want to learn more about how to determine, please let me know. Um, but yeah, those are some of the things that you would be wanting to watch out for to see if you are exercising a little bit too much for um, optimal fertility, for example. So now we are going to talk about supplementation. And I will say, like I always say, whenever I talk about supplements, you cannot out supplement a poor diet and or lifestyle when it comes to fertility and egg quality. So if you are doing all of the things that I just mentioned with your diet and lifestyle, you're really taking great care of your body and you're wanting to just give yourself a little bit of an extra nudge to improve your egg quality, then I would recommend some of these supplements. So CoQ10 is sort of like the quintessential egg quality, sperm quality supplements. It's an antioxidant and it is also found in organ meats. So I used to earlier on in my practice, I would, if somebody was taking desiccated liver, I'd say like, oh, well, you're getting CoQ10 in there anyway. Um, what I do in my practice now is that I do add CoQ10 as an additional supplement for a lot of women if they are a little bit older, or if there's reason to believe that perhaps there's an issue with egg quality, if they've been trying to get pregnant for a little while and they're just, it's just not happening, then we were going to add in a CoQ10 supplement in addition to the desiccated liver capsules. So the dosage for CoQ10 is two to 600 milligrams, and it's best absorbed if it's taken in divided doses. So there are supplements that that are 600 milligrams, but if you take 200, maybe two or three times throughout the day, your body will be better able to absorb the CoQ10 in that scenario rather than just taking a bunch at once. So that's something that's important to know. Omega-3s can also help to improve your egg quality as well as cervical mucus production and can help to eliminate period pain as well. So that's a really important thing to add in. But if you are eating fish regularly throughout your life, then you maybe don't need an omega-3 supplement. So like I said, that's kind of the kind of thing that I recommend on a case-by-case -case basis based on all of the factors that I'm seeing um, in each person. Iodine is something else that can be helpful for egg quality. So it can be found in seaweed and seafood as well, but you can also supplement with it if you have um, a thyroid issue or if you have reason to believe that your iodine is low. You can also do what's called an iodine loading test to test your iodine levels if you want to check and see if it's low before you start supplementing with it. Um, DHEA is another supplement that many women use for egg quality, but I highly recommend getting your levels tested before you start taking this supplement. So there are in a lot of fertility spaces, especially for women that are going into assisted reproductive technology like IUIs or IVF, for example, they will be recommended to take DHEA just sort of ran just because they're older, for example, or maybe have low AMH or high FSH, for example. But I will say that it's best if you can test your DHEA-S levels. So that's just the form. Any If you ask for DHEA, they'll know to do the dash S part. Um, that's just the form that it's found in your blood. So testing to make sure that it is actually low and that it is actually a supplement that would be supportive for you. If you're taking it and it's not really the right supplement for you, then it could also, 
impact other aspects of your cycle and your hormones in a negative way. So that's not something that you would want to be doing. Um, vitamin D the, in the form of vitamin D3 can also be really supportive for egg quality and many, many other things. Royal jelly is something too that you can incorporate to improve egg quality. And some people say that it's total BS and it doesn't do anything. And then other people will say that it, it mimics human estrogen. And so it can negatively impact our own estrogen. And then other people say that it can help with the conversion of DHEA into estrogen or other hormones. And that can actually be really supportive of our system. And it can help to thicken the uterine lining too. So if somebody has a thin uterine lining or they have low estrogen, for example, I'd be thinking a little bit more about adding in some royal jelly. And so the royal jelly is the food that the queen bee eats. So that is why it's viewed as being helpful for fertility. And then if women have PCOS, then I recommend some more targeted specific supplements for that situation, which can also help to improve egg quality. And then I always recommend a prenatal supplement as well. I've been really loving the brand Needed. And so if you, I will put a direct link in the show notes of this episode, but if you can't find it for any reason, um, definitely let me know and I will help you to get some, get access to that brand in particular. They just have all of the nutrients that you really need to help to support your egg quality. And they do have another egg quality supplement as well. So I will include links to both of those in the show notes so you can check those out. And in terms of other supplements, I would also say that taking a probiotic could be helpful for some women. This can help to improve immune, the immune system and your digestion and regulate your bowel movements. And all of that is really important for your system overall and your egg quality in particular. And so I don't recommend for women to keep taking probiotics sort of forever. You would take it for three months and then stop taking it and see how your digestive system is doing. Um, Pure Encapsulations and Thorn have really great probiotics to, um, to play with if you're interested in, in something like that. Preformed vitamin A is also really important for egg quality. So that's part of the, the brand needed that I just brought up. They have preformed vitamin A in the form of retinol in their supplement. And it is also found in liver. And so if you're taking the desiccated liver capsules, I will link to my favorite company of desiccated liver capsules in the show notes as well. And so if you're taking those, then you should be in really great shape for vitamin A, as well as all of the other dietary recommendations that I made at the beginning. And uh, cod liver oil is another great source of vitamin A and also a great source of vitamin D and omega-3s. So that could be something to try as well. And part of the reason that preformed vitamin A is so important is because it's needed for assimilation of all of the minerals in the diet. And that is really important for egg quality. And so one of the things when it comes to vitamin A is there's a lot of fear around vitamin A causing potentially uh, birth defects for during pregnancy. And I will say that I don't necessarily recommend supplementing with a separate vitamin A supplement, especially in really high doses. But what I just recommended with the needed supplement and the desiccated liver or cod liver oil is not going to get you 
to be in a zone of vitamin A that would be detrimental to your system. So in food sources, vitamin A is really different from a synthetic supplement, for example. So in a food source, vitamin A levels are safe up to 10 times the amount that you would find in a supplement. So any of the research that you've seen about vitamin A being unsafe or detrimental is based on supplementation and not based on desiccated liver or cod liver oil or, um, you know, the, the amount that's in the needed supplement, for example. So those are all really important things to know. So when it comes to egg quality, some of the other things that you can start to think about would be acupuncture, um, working with a functional medicine doctor or a naturopathic doctor, for example. So there is a lot of work that I do with lab testing and helping women to find functional ranges. But if you want to you know, work with a functional medicine doctor, a naturopathic medical doctor, they will just kind of have a slightly different lens through which to view this information. Um, acupuncture can be really, really supportive of egg quality. And part of the reason for this is because it improves blood flow specifically into the area of where the eggs are located. And it can also help to reduce inflammation in the entire body as well as in your pelvic area. And I will also say that abdominal massage. So this episode is coming out just after my episode with Dr. Jennifer Mercier. And I specifically asked her in that episode, do you think that abdominal massage can help to support egg quality. And her answer was anecdotally, yes. And so I would agree with that, that, you know, there's so many things that there isn't a specific test or there isn't a specific research study to say like, oh, this, these people did this and their egg quality was improved, or, you know, there just aren't studies like that, that I'm, that I'm aware of. And I don't know exactly how you would test that. Um, but I will say that anecdotally women receive work on their abdomen and they do get pregnant more easily. So, um, you know, I think that there's a variety of things that are going on in that situation, optimizing all of the organs in the abdominal cavity, improving blood flow, um, warming the area, giving the area love, loving, tender touch. I think all of that is really supportive of, of fertility. And so I, is it directly correlated to improving egg quality? Yeah. I mean, who knows? We don't know, but I think it's, it's not outside of the realm of possibility that it could be improving for egg quality. So hopefully this was helpful. I will say that when it comes to fertility, we are looking for quality over quantity. When it comes to eggs, we are not Potentially you are considering doing some kind of assisted reproductive technology, but if you're not at that point yet, then it really doesn't matter if your AMH levels are really low or your FSH is high. If you are working to improve your fertility in the ways in which I outlined here, and particularly, you know, thinking about improving your egg quality with making more conscious choices about the things that you have in your home environment, about the things that you're being exposed to from the foods that you choose. If you are balancing your blood sugar, you know, if you are optimizing your fertility and, and all of, 
all of these more natural ways, then, you know, the numbers are, are just numbers and they're important to have. And I do think it's important to be thoughtful about how age impacts our fertility. I don't want to seem like I'm, you know, I do think that there's a limit to when women are fertile, but I also believe that it's different for every woman and our fertility is somewhat impacted by our genetics. So it could be helpful to talk to your grandma if she's still around or your mom about the menopausal transition or their own fertility journey or their own journey through menstruation. That can give you some helpful insights. And it's not the full picture because you, you know, grew up in different environments, you're different people and you have different, you know, you also have the genetics from your, your dad's side. So you could certainly ask the women on that side too, depending on your, your comfort level. Um, but yeah, I just, I hope this was helpful in terms of giving you some ideas of more things to do when it comes to egg quality and knowing that it's not going to just be one pill or one specific thing that you're going to do that all of a sudden your egg quality is going to improve, but it's a multifactorial situation, like all things when it comes to fertility. So until next time, have a lovely rest of your day. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with somebody that you think might benefit from hearing some of the information that was shared here today. If you're interested in finding more about me, you can find me on my website at rosebudwellness.com, on Instagram at rosebud underscore wellness, or on Facebook at the Rosebud Wellness Community. Also, if you're feeling called to leave a, a rating or writing a review, that would be amazing. It really helps to get the podcast out to more listeners. Thanks so much for listening and until next time.